Support for OPB comes from our members and from our sponsors, like Tracy Ray from the employment law firm of Baron Lehman. Tracy says that OPB sponsorship is a great way to support the community and connect with Baron Liebman's clients. This is Think Out Loud on OPB. I'm Dave Miller. The German forester Peter Wohlleben had written 15 books that didn't make a huge splash before he catapulted himself into global attention with The Secret Life of Trees. It was essentially a translation of forest science for a lay audience, and it became an international bestseller. Wohlleben has followed that up with a new book. It's called The Power of Trees, How Ancient Forests Can Save Us If We Let Them. In it, he argues that we should leave forests alone because trees are very good at adapting to whatever comes their way, even the profound effects of climate change. We spoke to Wohlleben in front of an audience recently at Powell's Books in downtown Portland. We started by talking about the ways that trees can learn. He has an example that involves trees in an ancient beech forest near where he lives. Some are on south-facing slopes and others are on north-facing ones. I asked him what these different sets of trees were used to experiencing. On the southern slope, um, the beech trees have experienced uh, droughts because it's more sunny, uh, the soil is not as deep as on the northern slope. Uh, it's uh, On the northern slope, they have had always enough water. They have never experienced a drought. And uh, so, uh, yeah, they're, they have lived with rich water resources and uh, they didn't need to manage uh, their wa- water consumption on the northern slope. So yeah. what happened when there were three successive years of drought? Yeah, uh, the, the beech trees on the southern slope, they, they looked well. And on the northern slope, for the first two years, they also looked well. And then uh, in the third very dry year, uh, the, the soil, uh, the drought reached the deeper soil layers. And then you, you saw that the beech trees were shocked. Uh, I remember in August, first, uh, first weeks of August in uh, 2020, that they dropped off one-third of their leaves within a day. And that looks, looked really bad. And, and our son, uh, who saw it first, uh, uh, um, uh, gave, gave him a, f- a phone call, and, and uh, we, we uh, went out and said, OK, perhaps they are going to die. And uh, no, um, and the German forces, just to say that, uh, they were allowed in this year to uh, cut down beech trees, which uh, dropped more than uh, 30% of their leaves. And afterwards, but afterwards, it turned out that they were just le- learning. Uh, trees are able to learn very fast, and uh, that's a, a normal reaction to drop off leaves and, and then, then to wait what, what will happen. And if, if the drought continues, they drop more leaves. Luckily, in this case, uh, we had a big rain cloud uh, going against our mountains, uh, stayed there for one day and leaving more than 60 liters per square meter. So um, um, they, they were good afterwards, but uh, for the next drought we had in, two, uh, 2000, uh, in uh, 2022, uh, you saw a different reaction because they didn't drop leaves anymore because they have changed their way of water management. What uh, do you mean? So, so yeah. So at two years after they had dealt with a, a potentially catastrophic drought, they they sucked up water differently? Yeah. Um, we have uh, evidence that beech trees are changing their water management. Uh, um, 
even if the, uh, in, in um, years with more rain. Because they experience that there may be a dry summer, so they make um, a break in summertime. They may produce a lot of sugar in, in May, in June, and then they make a break, and then in autumn they continue. And so all in all, uh, after uh, when, the, when the winter starts, they have enough sugar for the winter time. So all in all, they, they, they stay healthy. So they, they make a break, whether it rains or not. So they, they change their behavior. And, and what we know is that trees are able to give those knowledge uh, to their offspring by epigenetical effects. So the seedlings uh, are much more climate resilient as the older trees. Well, then there are some experiments that you write about that show this. How did they set up experiment, experiments to, to try to see if the, the offspring of of trees that got a lot of water or a little water, would what they would learn. Yeah. In Switzerland, ETH uh, Zurich, for example, they they watered um, pine stand, uh, half a pine stand, and the other half uh, pine stand was dried out with uh, roofs and for around about 10 years. And then they looked what the seedlings are, are doing uh, during a drought. And the seedlings from this dried out pine stand, uh, they were much more resilient to droughts than the seedlings from the old pines which were watered for 10 years. So you, look, you see exactly that the offspring learned from the mother trees by epigenetic effects, but we don't know if there are other effects. There may be also effects through the roots because they connect to the seedlings and perhaps even there is a, a transfer of information. How much can a beech tree uh, change its behavior, and can it change enough given the changing world? Um, I think uh, we should shouldn't look at trees uh, because uh, trees are just a part of an ecosystem, and the, the whole ecosystem reacts. And we we always think ah the trees should be more climate resilient, or uh, if they aren't, we shouldn't replace them by more climate climate resilient trees from uh, southern more species. And that's wrong. Because we know that the whole system is reacting. A tree knows since 300 million years that it's not able to move if conditions change. So, and that's the difference to us, uh, a tree is able to change the condition back <laughs> within a big ecosystem. And uh, Alexander von Humboldt is uh, it's a famous German researcher who was also in North America, a rock star of his time in science. Um, he already knew that, that uh, forests, forests are able to cool down the local atmosphere around about 10 to 15 degrees in average in summertime. And that's 10 times more what climate change actually does. So they are able to cool down, they are able to create actively rain clouds. If it is too dry, they create rain clouds. How do they do? They uh, evaporate water, and we think, uh, no, but they consume water so that it's even drier. No, the water isn't away. It's, the water is above the trees. And, there, and then they, uh, get, they evaporate uh, certain substances and they evaporate billions of bacteria living on their leaves. And the bacteria uh, creates in the clouds more ice crystals and they, this falls down as rain. So the forest, intact forest, big forest create water cycles. And we, on, we as humans, we interrupt those water cycles by, by uh, splitting the forest into small pieces, by cutting the old trees, and old trees are like libraries. We know that uh, trees, the longer they live, the more information they store. For example, in Germany, 
there were the oldest oaks were researched, and in 1819, um, and the droughts, they suffered very uh, heavily, and in the th third year of the drought, they recovered, and scientists uh, researched the leaf shape and saw they changed the leaf shape to a Spanish oak type. We said, uh, no, that's a different species. Uh, and uh, the, the explanation is that these old oak trees perhaps remember their Spanish origin because they, the population of these oaks uh, survived the Ice Age in Spain and came then back by birds, of course. And uh, now in this heavy droughts, uh, they change back to, yeah, like they live in Spain and they recover. And the seedlings get all this knowledge from the older trees. Therefore, and it's exactly here the same in Oregon, the, the, it's so important to keep the oldest trees. They are the most important one. I, we, have, we heard in German forestry is exactly the same as it is here. And um, it's all about renewing the forest, making them more healthy with younger trees, and that's nonsense. The oldest trees are the most worthful. They contain the information. Uh, bes beside that, they contain the oldest. 1% of trees contain 50% of the biomass of a forest. So it's all about the oldest trees, not the youngest. The youngest, it's easy to replace for the trees themselves, but old, old trees you can't replace. You just went through a lot. I want to, I want to unpack some of it. <laughs> sorry, no, that. that's no. There's, there is a lot to get to, but I want to go back to to those beech hour, trees sorry. that were, um, that were, um, the northern slope beech trees that were not used to drought. And one day they dropped thirty percent of their leaves. Why are they dropping their leaves to begin with? What is the the civiculture reason for doing that? Yeah, it's um, yeah. It begins uh, in the roots. In the roots, uh, we, uh, the the trees have brain-like structures. There are um, brain-like structures, brain-like processes going on, even sometimes even with the same uh, neurotransmitters. You can't say neurotransmitters because plants don't have neurons. So uh, we have and that's the trick uh, of science. <laughs> it's like in our brain. The roots notice it's going to be drier. Then they produce your hormones, and then. Uh, they, it's, it's part of their body. We think a tree is a stem and the branches and the crown. But no, that's a little bit like our stomach. The main tree is in, in the underground. And we, we think, why, why uh, do we, the tree drops the branches, uh, the, 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 the leaves? Uh, it's because the, the roots realize it's, it's too dry and we have to close uh, the little mouths on the backside of, of the leaves. And if it is not enough, if there's too much evaporation, they, they drop from the top down more and more leaves until uh, the, the drought uh, stops. So it's Because otherwise they'll, they'll lose even more water. The, even more water? The leaves mean losing water. It also means potentially making sugar and growing. No, 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 no. It's, uh, they, they stop growing much uh, longer before. Uh, they stop, they, they reduce water consumption. If this is not enough, they still stop photosynthesis completely. If this is not enough, they start to drop some leaves on the top, and then that's a process. It's, it's like we are doing it. When we feel uncomfortable, we try to make it a little bit more comfortable. If it is uncomfortable, we change more. And so it's a tree uh, adapting, adapting, adapting until it's, it's okay. But it's also an emergency, right? I mean, by that point, you, the, the tree can't grow. If it doesn't have leaves, it can't... Yeah, there, there are also more at that uh, point. panic erections. For example, with the horse chestnut um, uh, I describe in the book, uh, we have there's a row um, in the street where our forest academy is, and this one horse uh, horse chest, chestnut obviously panicked and dropped all leaves off. And the, if uh, when, when the cloud came, the, the, that I described with a lot of rain, 
all other chestnuts uh, started to make photosynthesis again. And this one couldn't because it hadn't any leaf left. And then something strange happened in October when all other horse chestnuts were ready for winter, winter sleep, hibernation, like a bear. Uh, yeah, exactly why they collect sugar. Uh, they don't col collect salmon, they collect sugar. And uh, this, this one uh, horse chestnut realized, oh, I don't have enough sugar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then it, they, it brought out new leaves, which should be uh, 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 there for the next spring. It brought new leaves off and it, and it flowered. And the question is why? Many people think, think ah, it, it, it realized it, it's going to die, so it tries to reproduce. No. Imagine, if you're, you're, if you're uh, hungry or thirsty or, and near starving to death, I, think, I don't think the next thought will be, I would like to have sex. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> if, you're, if you need water or whatsoever, but that's not your last thought, hopefully. Um, <laughs> no. You, I mean, uh, that is how salmon do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair. Yeah. That, that's another story I could tell. <laughs> But to come back to the horse chestnut, no, you can as a tree, you can just get pressure on your branches, and then all buds uh, come out, whether it are um, uh, flowers or uh, blossoms or uh, leaves. So it, it came out, and it's it, it's of high risk because the days uh, are shorter in October and November. We have the first frost days, frost uh, with temperatures. Yeah, it's, it, I just know it in, in Celsius, below zero. Um, so uh, the question is, or was, uh, would it, will, it, will it survive? And uh, luckily it survived, but in the next spring, which is nearly impossible for horse chestnut, it didn't flower. Because in, in autumn, when it was very weak, it decided not to produce buds for blossoms. So you, you saw very clear on this little poor horse chestnut, the trees are able to make mistakes, the trees are able to, uh, to panic, and in the next, there was a heavy drought we uh, um, suffered in Germany so far, it was uh, 2022. Uh, um, uh, this horse chestnut kept all its, all its leaf on the branches, so this mistake is, wasn't made again. Hmm. Um, so let's turn more deeply to the the microclimate changing abilities of uh, big stands of trees, of, of forests. Yeah. Uh, because you mentioned two things, both making kind of atmospheric rivers, making rain, and also yeah. um, significantly cooling yeah. the air around them. How does the cooling work? Exactly as if we are sweating. I think, oh, oh, wonder, we are getting cooler. Uh, exactly, this is what tree, trees does, um, big tree, is evaporating around about 500 liters of water per summer day. Imagine you were sweating 500 liters. <laughs> That's very cold. So over, over 100 gallons of water. Yeah. And um, this water, as I said, is in the way. It's, it's, uh, you can even uh, feel it when you touch the stem. Uh, beech trees, for example, they have a very thin bark. They are cooler like oak trees in summer times because it's the water from the, from the ground pumping up uh, in, into the crown. That's the first step of cooling. The second is to evaporate the water. And then, of course, um, you, uh, the, the trees, the big forest creates clouds above. That's, that's like an umbrella. So the sun is away. And then it starts to rain, the next cooling effect. So all in all, you have 10 to 15 degrees uh, temperature lowering. Is that a, 
a byproduct, a beneficial byproduct um, in a lot of ways of, of, of photosynthesis and of the way trees exist? Or is it part of the plan after 300 million years of evolution? That, that is part of the plan. Um, there's, there's a lot of uh, things going on in the forest. Uh, and as I said, we just regard trees. It's the whole ecosystem which works together. For example, if uh, you put two uh, atoms together, uh, or three, two H atoms and one O atom, that are, that are just, it's just gas. If you put them together, you have water or ice. So something really different uh, um, is created. And if you put some bacteria together with other bacteria, that's much more complicated. Some crazy uh, things uh, are going on. And so far, we haven't detected more than around about 10% of all species living in a forest. For example, Norwegian forest scientists, they, uh, they researched two spoonful of forest soil and discovered around about 40,000 different bacteria species. Not 40,000 uh, bacteria. They, there were, I think, around about 50 billion bacteria in those two, two spoonful, belonging to 40,000 different species. And uh, just one species, species can make the difference. We have uh, in the northern hemisphere the ash dieback. And uh, from a, from a um, uh, fungi from, I think, Japan or so. And uh, most of the ashes are dying from this, but a certain percentage survive, and we don't know why. Until uh, a research was done last year, uh, and the scientists found out that one, one bacteria species of 10,000 changed and uh, mutated to a, a, a different uh, chemical production and is now fighting against the fungi. Why? Because this little bacteria thinks uh, my sugar donator is dying, and then I'm dying too, so I should react. Now I use the word thinking. You may say, oh, that's a little bit anthropomorphizing uh, bacteria. Uh, no. It's a singular cell organism, and uh, for example, slime molds. You know slime molds? I think you can buy them as blob <laughs> for children. <laughs> it's it's, it's, uh, it's really, really nice to have it in, in, your, in your house. It's, it's moving, so you should be a little bit careful. No, very slowly. Uh, and uh, in Germany, uh, also a podcast, um, and uh, it, it's always good to talk to scientists about that. And the, for example, from the University of Munich, there's a, a scientist and she is researching the human brain. And this singular cell organism, the slime mold, which loves oat flake, you can put it in a, in a labyrinth, it finds the shortest way uh, to its beloved oat flakes, is able to communicate to other slime molds, has a geographic mind, that means also memories, and imagination of where it is, a singular cell organism. And we just think, oh, it doesn't have 1.5 kilogram protein on its neck, so it has to be stupid. <laughs> That's how we think it works. No, and this, see, uh, this slime mold is, is regarded as a, a model um, how it how our brain works because uh, it seems like the slime mold stores memory the same way we do. No, it's the other way around. We store memories the same way slime molds do because can, they were earlier there. Can I? <laughs> I I'm. I'm. Fa this is the. I think maybe the one of the biggest scenes that's come up in almost every answer of yours so far is that as humans and and especially in in certain realms of science. Um, we're not, we're denigrating almost every or most non-human versions of life. Yeah, yeah. 
um, in various ways, right? You've, whether it's trees or slime mold or bacteria. And the underlying this in, in, in your argument is that, that this is one of the reasons that humans are living out of balance with the world. Yeah. But is there, can't we change our ways without getting into a debate about the, the what is intelligence, what, what is desire, what is emotion, what is anthropomorphizing? I guess I'm wondering, um, in terms of your, your project of, of getting our species to change our ways in profound ways, why it is that you focus so much on questions of intelligence? Yeah, I think uh, that's how we, um, how we see ourselves. We, we think we are something special, which, which we are. Slime mold is something special, a tree is something special. Trees don't write books, they are not interested in, otherwise they would do perhaps, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but we are, so but what we did since, since the age of enlightenment, that's nothing uh, uh, ages old, uh, since, since Stone Age or so, that's something relatively new, that we see uh, nature as something different, and we are on one side, that's anthropocentric, that we think nature serves us. It's uh, so important to see that we are still part of it. And I tell you a little thing, and you see the, the, that you're still part of it. You are, all of you are not individuals. You're not living on your own. You have, for example, the same amount of bacteria, then you have body cells. Uh, the bacteria are communicating with you. They create you moods by producing hormones in your guts. Not, it's not the gut brain that uh, is bacteria but, uh, that, that are communicating with you. Or this little guy is living in your face. Yeah, this... Hair follicle mites, which are well adapted to our faces. Uh, they are 0.5 millimeters long. They don't have eyes anymore, but because they can see or realize that it's nighttime by the um, melatonin level uh, rising in you. And then they say, ah, it's nighttime. You are sleeping. Oh, that's perfect. Because then they come into your face and there they mate. <laughs> <laughs> So your face is, a, is their planet. Sorry for that. Everybody, everybody of you has. <laughs> so we, yeah. But, but why are we so oh, a little bit shocked? Because we think, uh, no, that's me. And they don't belong to me. No, we are part of this. We are an ecosystem. We are part of the ecosystem. And come back to your question. It's very important to realize that sitting in this wonderful library is just possible because all those creatures around in the forest are working for us. That's, this is a concentrate of of human civilization, which is just possible because all these other uh, beings around us that benefits us. I want to take this back to um, a fascinating example that you write about um, that was brought to us from some Argentinian plant scientists. And, and this gets to questions of <laughs> cooperation among family members, uh, yeah. among related um, plants. What yeah. did these Argentinian scientists do? Yeah, they they did crazy uh, things. They they ask crazy questions. I love scientists as asking crazy questions because otherwise we wouldn't know very much. Um, they ask if uh, certain uh, uh, I don't know the the word for this plant. It's um it's a little herb. It's, it, it doesn't matter what it is. Perhaps it, this what, I, what I'm telling you may be found on on other plants or perhaps on all plants. We don't know because it's just an example. Uh, this plant they put in in a laboratory and they ask if this plant could judge which uh, if other plants of the same species are family members. 
Okay, that's a strange question. To get money for this research uh, should be very hard. But um, uh, what you can um, observe is that they were planted in pots and um, uh, then, then uh, when the, if they are family members, they keep their leaves away from each other so uh, every individual has enough sunlight. And if they are not related, they, they grow into each other and uh, so the, the photosynthesis is not that optimal. They compete for sunlight they compete. If, if they're not. They compete. Uh, and uh, the, the question family. is, why? And then uh, it's, it's hard science. It's, um, you can um, judge this by, epigen uh, by genetical uh, proofs. You can switch off some genes and one after the other and look if they behave uh, different afterwards. And, if, and uh, as they switched off the gene which is responsible for um, uh, seeing blue and red light, they didn't uh, realize that their family members were, were near them. So it's, uh, they have seen their family members. So that's the first proof that plants in this case, the Akashmarwand, is able to see if the neighboring plant is a member of its family. So, and we say, what? Plants can see? Yeah, plants can also hear. For example, they can hear um, the, the chewing sound of insects or plant-eating mammals, and then they react. And that's a very new um, study uh, where the next question is, if we with our human civilization sounds are disturbing the defending reactions of plants because we are so loud. <laughs> yeah? So, wow, okay. Are, are there tree analogs to that plant experiment? Um, there, there are tree analogs concerning some things. Um, for example, uh, that uh, trees are able to taste. They're able to taste the saliva of deer. That was um, uh, um, studied, I think, at the University of Leipzig. Um, they pruned um, branches from little beech trees and um, then uh, uh, instantly started a wound healing reaction. And if they dropped a little saliva uh, of deer on the wound, uh, there's, and then the tree started a defending reaction. So the tree knows what's going on. Tree has a lot of senses uh, to judge what's going on. Roots, for example, uh, can see light much better than we can. They are, they're much more sensitive for light. Um, I've, uh, we've talked to... Um, uh, scientists from the University of Bonn, and she said they have made experiments bringing roots into a box which was very, uh, uh, very much light in and just a small black dot on a wall. And the roots try to flee to this dot because they hate light. Hmm. Huh. Um, I was surprised, maybe I shouldn't have been, but I was surprised to read in the new book um, that German foresters for years now have been planting Douglas firs in, <laughs> in, in, in many parts of Germany. Um, the, the, the state tree of Oregon, the tree on our flag, on our um, license plates. I mean, a, a hugely important native tree to mm. hear. Why is it being planted in Germany? Yeah, because uh, German foresters think uh, the forest is not able to, uh, to do it uh, on its own. The, the highest-ranking forest scientist, um, he's the head of an um, advisory team for the German government, says uh, the, the nature is not longer able to heal itself. And the forest is not able to uh, longer to work on itself because of climate change. Foresters have to save the forest by cutting trees and planting new ones. We say, uh, no, that's the reason. <laughs> that's not, not, a, not of help. And they are uh, 
uh, they, they say we should plant more climate-resilient trees, which are adapted to hotter and drier climate. And we say, uh, just a moment, Douglas fir is, I think Douglas firs don't like it very hot and very dry. I don't have to explain to you, uh, but perhaps <laughs> here should have been German for more German forces, um, not like me, but the, 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 mo the more uh, the traditional ones. And uh, exactly, some of my... Uh, uh, four four uh, foresters living in the forester house where we now live had planted Douglas fir trees and they are dying because of the heavy droughts we have in Germany. And uh, but although uh, we, you can see this already, uh, German foresters uh, declare that Douglas fir or red oak from North America or, or Lebanon uh, cedar cedar uh, will be a good choice. Lebanon cedar, for example, it's a conifer which grows, of course, in Lebanon. Uh, in heights of more than 1,000 meter and very much snow. This should replace dying spruce plantations that dies because of heat. That sounds really crazy, which it is. That's the German forester Peter Wohlleben in conversation recently at Powell's Books. The second half of our conversation is a minute away. From the Gert Boyle studio at OPB, this is Think Out Loud. I'm Dave Miller. If you're just tuning in, we're listening today to a recent conversation I had with a German forester, Peter Wohlleben. He's most known for his international bestseller, The Secret Life of Trees. His new book is called The Power of Trees, How Ancient Forests Can Save Us If We Let Them. At one point, I asked him what challenges saplings face when they're grown and planted in the ways that are most common in commercial settings these days. For example, if you buy trees from a tree nursery, in Germany they, they would be called tree schools, which is even more crazy because um, in such tree schools, the roots will be cut, brainiac structures. It's not good to cut them in school. Um, and why? Because you can plant them much more easy. Or they are uh, planted a little in uh, little containers, which is also a very uh, hard life for trees because uh, if you plant garden plants in your garden, which for just uh, one season, and you put them off in autumn, you see the pot shape in, from the roots. So uh, it's, it's uh, not possible for trees to root correctly deep when the, when the roots uh, are cut off. The next thing is um, the trees are perhaps from, from uh, uh, 500 kilometers away from, from someone who collected the seeds. And I'll tell you a little experiment from Germany. Uh, they in the Black Forest there are uh, mostly deciduous trees, but some conifers like white fir. And this white fir, they thought, okay, if trees are able to adapt to climate change, it's okay to have the same tree species from southern more population. That would be okay, right? It's exactly genetical the same white fir. So they brought white fir from southern Europe to the Black Forest, and it didn't grow. Say uh, why? So they made uh, molecular genetical research. It's really hard science. And they found out that the fungi didn't accept southern more white fur. When we say, uh, well, just a moment, that's 100% white fur. And the fungi says, no, it isn't. <laughs> the fungi is always right. Yeah, it's a human category to say that's white fur. It's just 1,000 kilometers more in the south. And the fungi say, no, it's a different tree species. I don't accept it. Well, so this, that gets to something, I mean, I, we've had a, a number of conversations on, on Think Out Loud over the last couple of years with 
I think very well-meaning forest scientists, people who, who are not out to chop down as many trees as possible, but, but to save particular species, who earnestly say that in some cases it makes sense to, to, to save trees um, that cannot adapt fast enough. Despite everything you've said, it, yeah. it, it makes sense to, to find some that are not gonna survive where they are and, yeah. and put them 200 miles north. You're, you're saying this has been done and, yeah. and it doesn't work. They, they say if we don't do it, we might lose some of these trees forever. If this were the last trees on earth, I would try this too, but I think that, is, that isn't the case. And the, the thing is, we have to understand that, that it's all about an ecosystem. It's not about special species. Forest ecosystem contains, I think, more than hundreds of thousands of species. And the little ones, like bacteria, are exactly as important as big trees. But we all, always admire big things. Oh, that's tall. Okay, that's uh, crazy. And the little ones, ah, that's not so important. But it's the, a tree is, is a mixture of thousands of species. And so uh, if, as long as you don't know it exactly, you have to respect that it's better uh, on its own. It's like you want to save endangered um, animal species just living in zoos without the, the natural habitat. That's a very th sad thing. That would be the very last solution. Then it's okay. But uh, first we should... Uh, bring all our power in to, to make forests more resilient. And that means that trees grow old, that you have big forests like you luckily have here. In Germany, they are very fragmented. We have our forests fragmented in around about two million pieces. Two million pieces, very small forests. And if they cool down the local atmosphere and they are very small, uh, warm air comes in, so it's all useless. So it's all about big forest, old trees, a lot of dead wood. I know that's a big topic here. But what we are talking about are not dead wood on clear cuts. It's dead wood with thick trunks and thick stems, which are like sponges soaked full of water and that are fire breaks. Uh, they, they, they don't fuel fire. Hmm. I'm glad you brought up fire, which is, I think this is true, a, a much bigger deal in the American West right now than it is in Germany, although it's possible that too could change. Um, as, as I'm sure you know, for thousands of years, indigenous people in the West used fire a, as a, a human tool on the landscape. Um, and then for about a hundred years, um, the, the Euro-American policy has been the exact opposite. Not only not prescribed burns, yeah. which we yeah. call now, but, but putting out basically any fire so it couldn't become a, a small one. If you're biggest overall prescription in terms of what humans should do is don't do anything, then how do you approach the question of prescribed burns after a century of fire suppression? A century is nothing. Uh, we, if we go back, let's say, 10 million years without any human influence, these forests managed to survive, otherwise they wouldn't be there now. So uh, they are able to do this on their own. What when you say this, what do you mean? Yeah, but, but uh, if, if forests are adapted to, to all those things, they are, the trees like to have stable conditions. So they, they do everything to avoid big fires. A, a, a ground fire, not very hot, let's say 300 or 400 degrees, that's okay for trees. A ground fire with uh, 700 degrees Celsius uh, burning the complete tree, that's not okay. That's exactly what we see now. Why do we see this? Because 
most of the forests have been managed heavily. Where are the old trees gone in most cases? And if we have some little spaces left and we have big wildfires in, in human-managed forests, then also these little islands of old-growth forests uh, will be destroyed. But um, we see it in Germany, it's exactly the same. We, we have never had wildfires in German forests until German foresters started to manage and replace BC and make even and even aged uh, tree stands. And what, what you also have here in most cases are young forests uh, where the bark of the trees is not as thick as it should be, uh, where, where the uh, dead wood uh, um, amounts are not very big and so on. So uh, we see young forests many forests, and if you leave those, uh, this forest on its own, yeah, the, the danger of fire is for some decades or perhaps one or two centuries higher, but uh, in, in the long term, uh, it's, I, I, I'm convinced it's lower because trees are not interested in being burned. I'm, I'm, I just want to make sure that I understand what you're saying because the, the argument of, of both native tribes and, and increasingly uh, the, the, the broad forest management community uh, is that is it because there ha we, we've put out every possible fire, now there's a possibility for catastrophic fires. Yeah. And so because of that, we should both let some fires burn when lightning strikes mm -hmm. or when yeah. you know power lines um, aren't turned off. Um, and in addition, we should have small, carefully managed fires here and there to, to, to make it more like the way it used to be before human. In other words, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. humans doing things because humans for 100 years did too much. And even that you're saying is still too much human work? Yeah, uh, if, you, if it comes to nat native tribes, for example, they managed forests with old trees. That's, that's a different thing uh, to, to lighten a ground fire in old, old forests. But what's, what's, and now we think, okay, they, light, light, uh, they lighted fires in old forests, so we light fire in young forests. No, that's something different. Young forests, uh, the, uh, they have to concentrate biomass. And where do the, the wildfires start? In many, many cases on clear cuts. On clear cuts, the, the soil dries out. You have uh, high temperatures that you can boil eggs. So it's dry, and most fires, I'm heavily convinced, are human caused. It's, we say, ah, oh, it's lightning. That's by nature. No, it's, that's, as you say, power lines, that is cigarettes, that's by purpose, whatsoever. In Germany, uh, we have the same discussion. It's, it's a self-enlightened uh, fire. Uh, no. <laughs> Timber just didn't, don't burn because the sun is shining. Uh, so it's the big clear cuts. The first thing, if you want to avoid wildfires, you have to stop clear cuts. As, as long as you make clear cuts and say, oh, we have wildfires, so we have to burn uh, even the forest where the trees are intact, uh, that is a crazy method uh, to, to um, make uh, the forest more resilient. So first, stop clear cuts, let trees grow older, perhaps in between, in some regions surrounding, for example, the villages. That's uh, uh, something different to protect people. That's always okay to do their uh, little things like this, but in, in other cases, the biggest problem to be honest, for the forest, it's not the fire. It's the, it's the heavily, heavily uh, use of timber. We should reduce this. We should uh, make just a, a light thinning of forest. We should forbid clear cuts uh, as long as you are interested to, uh, to have less fire. Uh, this gets to one of your other prescriptions, um, which is that 
the, a carbon tax should be extended to all wood that's chopped down, to all wood products, whether it's for paper or uh, building homes yeah. or toilet paper or, or whatever. What's your reasoning? Yeah, the reason is uh, that's widely accepted by science, except forest science. Um, I have to say this, forest science, uh, its origin is in Germany. And in Germany, uh, they have a special um, situation that the German forestry admission is the biggest timber seller, although it should be control the law. So it controls itself, and so it says, everything is fine. <laughs> to, to thin a forest is to make it more resilient, because less timber can be burned in wildfires. Okay, it's the same narrative that you have here. Uh, it's carbon neutral because when we cut a tree, a new will grow and it will take up exactly this carbon. It's, I, I always wonder how will the tree differ, which carbon comes from coal and from trees. Uh, and uh, so uh, it's widely accepted among scientists that burning timber is worse than burning coal. And just uh, concerning the carbon effect, if you consider uh, the cooling effect of the atmosphere, if you cons consider the water cycle. For example, you are depending on the Amazon forest. I don't know if you know this, with your rain here. And we say, oh, it's El Nino. <laughs> no, it's the Amazon forest. Um, uh, so if you put all this together, it's the, the worst thing to burn timber. Not for a little fire for your evening and summertime or so, but to burn it in power plants, for example, in, in the US, there are big, big clear cuts in the southeast for European power plants because Europe regard, because of the big influence of the forest industry, uh, timber burning as carbon neutral. And that's, that's uh, environmental crime. And uh, we should stop that. And if we stop that, we have enough timber for houses, for books, for whatsoever, because the, the biggest amount of, of timber use is for burning, for energy production. And uh, you, how will you control how much is enough? You can, you can measure the temperature of a, of a forest if it gets fever by satellite. We have all those lovely instruments nowadays. You can see if the forest gets warmer if, uh, after the, the thinning than it was too much. And then you have to stop it for years until the forest recovers, so we can measure this. It's exactly like on you. We don't, you don't, if you got fever, you don't know exactly what your blood is doing and your killer cells or whatsoever. It's, it's enough that you, that you uh, know in, in Celsius it's 42 degrees and after that, so you have to stop it. And that's exactly what we see on forests. If the temperature rises too high, you have to stop it. And so you can control it very effectively. You can uh, control the biomass amount. We have all those instruments which are not in use in forestry. And you can ask, uh, I think you know why. <laughs> because if you, there, there, there are more and more uh, web pages where you can control by yourself what's going on in, your, in the front of your door in your forest. And the forest industry hate those instruments because you can control them now. And uh, they, the apps should be better, like bird apps or, or uh, webs on, on herbs or whatsoever. We, we should get, um, and I think we will have one um, within the next years, where you are able to control all those parameters very easily. Not, you don't have to be a scientist. You can just see, ah, that's our forest. Oh, it's looking bad. Oh, it's, it's that temperature and what, what's about the biomass? It's gone, okay. So no one can tell you anything anymore. It seems to me that one of the challenges we face as a species when trying to wrap our heads around trees um, 
is the, the difference in time scale of our mm-hmm. lives and the lives, the potential lives of trees, yeah. that we, we re, in recent centuries, we haven't let them get as old as they could. But, but this gets to a, a version of human impatience. Mm-hmm. How do you think about time? Yeah, uh, I'll tell, tell you an example. Um, I've uh, got a friend, an old forester, who um, advises uh, some companies in Chile, for example, and he was there and uh, they talked about a setter which didn't reproduce for centuries and they thought that it will be extinct one day. And one of the guys said, okay, I fly you in the mountains and then I show you something. And he showed him many young uh, setters uh, on a, on a um, mountain where the mountain, a part of the mountain came down. And this these are the special conditions this tree needs. And if there is for let's say for 500 years, not such an event, you will, won't see young trees of this species. So uh, it, it's our thinking in forest terms. We have been educated in Germany and because of German forces uh, who were also here, 100 years, 100 years ago, you can go wherever you want, German forces were there. <laughs> in India, in New Zealand, in Australia, in wheresoever. And uh, spreading the gospel of, of trees as uh, as a farm. Yeah, and uh, it, the narrative is a forest have to be uh, renewed with young trees. And if you don't have young trees, something goes wrong. No, trees can become old. Some, some uh, effects appear, for example, there are lichens which just, just grow on, on uh, um, spruce trees older than 500 years. So uh, it, some processes take time. And if you don't have young trees on a, on a certain spot for 100 years, it's okay. So, Wait, but how, how, do we, how do you help those of us who have a hard time thinking about a 500-year time scale? How do, you, how do you switch our brains to slow down in that way? And, to, and I mean, I guess what I'm saying is that I'm not going to be around in 500 years. Uh, and, and so I'm not going to see that. I'm, I may see nothing of the benefits of... The, the, the longest term benefits of what you're talking about. Yeah. I'm never going to see that. So, so I, how do you sell those of us who are, who are just not used to thinking about time in that way? Um, first thing is, if you uh, want to see a recovering process, that starts very fast and it's slowing down from, from year to year more and more. So in old forest, you'd almost see no difference uh, if you would be away for 10 years and come back, you see, oh, it's all looking, looking the same. If you see... Uh, cultivated land like farmland and you let it on its own then it recovers very fast and so you, it's in, you, in our time f- uh, scale like Chernobyl for example where the um, nuclear catastrophe um, happens in 1986 uh, it's, it was fenced in because of the, uh, the risks uh, um, with the nuclear um, things and uh, around about 400 square kilometers it's like a national park and now the wilderness returned, and you, you, it, it's completely wilderness with forests, with peatland, with a lot of wild animals which are resilient to this uh, toxic things. Meanwhile, so uh, uh, that are 36 years, and it's completely recovered. So that's that's going very fast. Trees are fast in in healing wounds as long as we let them. But when we uh, listen to forest scientists like the one I. I told you, then we think, ah, forests are so weak and we have to help them, we have to plant. Planting is a good thing. 
so I don't want, want uh, that you uh, misunderstand me. Uh, in, in cities, you can do so, or where no forest is within a range of, let's say, 10 miles or so. Then it's okay to plant on farmland. But in all other land, trees come back. It's it's one of my hobbies to to look in train stations. I will. I think the day after tomorrow, I will will do it here. Um, uh, for example, in Hamburg, uh, track 14, there's a little cherry tree. Uh, in Cologne, track 11, where it's it's the main track where all those uh, rapid trains are going over. There's a little uh, Acer tree, four years old. Also, this track is sprayed with Roundup, and it's very hot in summertime and very dry, so the trees are able to learn, and, and, and they, they can stand very rough conditions. So we don't have to help them, we have to let them on their own. You've become internationally famous for um, translating tree science to the general public and, and in a sense, um, explaining some, some things that may have in the past been mysteries to us. Yeah. What is still one of the biggest mysteries to you about trees? Yeah, um, perhaps i tell you a little story about our daughter. She um, said uh, 20 years ago while sitting at the breakfast table, uh, uh, that it's very strange that we always try to train animals to speak our language. Yeah, like parrots or chimpanzees or whomsoever. Uh, it would be much more intelligent if we learn their language. Uh, because if we are most intelligent, we should be able to. If a parrot can, can uh, learn human language, you should it go, it should go in the other, the other direction. But I don't know anyone who speaks chimpanzee, for example. Um, and... I'm, I'm not, to answer your question, I, I, it would be, wouldn't be my, my greatest wish to, to speak tree-ish, <laughs> although, although I try, but, I don't, I, but to listen to them by, for example, that could be done by computer, with, because trees are communicating by smell, by electrical signals, and there should be a decoder someday where I can translate it, and I see, ah, they just say, leave me alone. <laughs> Thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> That's the German forester and author Peter Wohlleben. His new book is called The Power of Trees, How Ancient Forests Can Save Us If We Let Them. We talked earlier this month in front of an audience at Powell's Books. If you don't want to miss any of our shows, you can listen on the NPR One app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Our nightly rebroadcast is at 8 p.m. Thanks very much for tuning in to Think Out Loud on OPB and KLCC. I'm Dave Miller. Have a great day. Think Out Loud is supported by Steve and Jan Oliva, the Rose E. Tucker Charitable Trust, and Michael, Kristen, Andrew, and Anna Kern.
Think Out Loud and OPB's critical reporting from all across the Northwest happen only with the support of our members. Do your part now and join in as a sustainer at opb.org pod.